Hey, morning. Good to continue on in, uh, in Matthew's gospel this morning. What I want to ask of you is uh, go ahead and, um, if you would, um, turn to Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles or in your scripture journals. There's some black Bibles around the room as well. Feel free to use one of those. If you're unsure where Matthew is, it's about three quarters of the way through the Bible uh, in the New Testament. It's the very first book in the New Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's always in the front of of every Bible that you find. So use that to find your way around the scriptures until you can do it a little bit more, more by feel or familiarity. So turn to Matthew. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a portion of Isaiah that I read earlier, right after the first song this morning. And I just want this to be kind of, uh, I want this to be swirling in the back of our minds a little bit as a background track to what we're doing this morning and to what is happening here and to really to frame how it is that we approach God when we come to him. So Isaiah 55 verse 6 says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will, this is his promise, he will abundantly pardon. And And then the Lord says this through Isaiah, He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. So there's a differentiation here between God and men. Neither are my ways, God says, your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, there's quite some distance there. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When we come to God, when we come to him, when we come to seek him, we come to him on his terms. We come to him on his terms. We are created in the image of God. God is not created in the image of man. He is the one who has created us, and therefore we come to him on his terms. And this is such an important and vital thing for us to get, and it spares us when we, when we see the world that he has created and we see ourselves fitting within a framework where he is creator, we are created, it spares us so much difficulty in life. In doing so, we're living, uh, you could say, with the grain of how life is created to work rather than against the grain. We're living according to how the world works. And so let's be careful, just at the outset here, as we're digging into Matthew chapter 2, let's be careful to remember something, this, that this world is not our world, uh, but it's God's world. Eugene Peterson, he said it like this, if you go against the grain in life, you get splinters. If you go against, if you live against the way that life was created to be lived by God, you get splinters. And so that's my approach this morning, and that's our approach as a church family. As we um, come into Matthew's gospel, as we open up scriptures, this ancient document handed down, preserved for us over the centuries, we want to, I want to come to this document with an openness, a kind of open-heartedness to what seems impossible according to our own experiences, because we're going to see some things in this text that you have probably not experienced, like angels speaking to you on multiple occasions, warning you of great danger. Maybe some of you have experienced these things, but I would be willing to say that many of us have not. And so it'll seem a little bit far away for some of us. And so I just want to frame our understanding and I want to frame our approach would we come open-hearted to what is happening here. So I want to read Matthew chapter 2 this morning. I want you to read along with me here. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13. 
This is in um, the midst of Jesus's birth narrative. Last week, Trevor taught through um, King Herod and the Magi um, seeking Jesus. Herod's kind of on the hunt for this, this baby who is rumored to be the king of the Jews, representing a new kingdom. And so Herod is under great threat here. Now, these magi depart from um, visiting Jesus as a young toddler and his family. And verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2 picks up here. It says this, Now when they, the magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, that's Jesus' dad, in a dream. And this angel said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child And there's a purpose behind that, to destroy him. And so he, Joseph, rose and he took the child and his mother Mary by night and departed from Bethlehem to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now Matthew tells us this was to fulfill what the Lord had had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by another prophet, Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph while he was in Egypt, saying, Rise, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. So go back, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us through it? Would you open our eyes to see what is here? Would you reorient our hope this morning and our understanding of the events in our life? Would you reorient us to see your care for all of your people throughout all of history, working out your purposes because your purposes always prevail. So may we want your purposes to prevail this morning in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, quick question. What kind of literature primarily are we reading here? What kind of literature is this, this passage? What genre is it? How would you describe the genre? Story, okay? So there's this, another way you could say that is narrative. Story is perfectly okay as well. This is, this is narrative primarily. And you'll see what I've just read here, what we've looked at together, it's under three headlines, the flight to Egypt, Herod kills the children, and the return to Nazareth. And so each of these portions, these three sections of narrative, they end with this um, statement where Matthew is reaching back into the Old Testament, and he's showing how this narrative seems to confirm firm uh, prophecy. So there is prophecy embedded within this narrative as well. He wants to prove um, through the narrative the relevance of the quotes that he's drawing out of the Old Testament. 
The first two quotes that we see here are quotes from Old Testament prophets. One is from a minor prophet named Hosea, and the second is from a major prophet named Jeremiah. They're just called minor and major based on the the amount of literature that they wrote in our Bible. So the minor prophets wrote small writings. The major prophets have these big bodies of work in our Bibles. The first two quotes, one by Hosea, one by Jeremiah. Then the last one, he says, notice this, he says, this was in verse 23, at the very end of that verse, he says, this was, uh, this was spoken by the prophets this, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Not prophet, but prophets. So there's a plural kind of statement here. I'll get to that towards the end of my message. The bottom line seems to be the main point here for Matthew that he is getting at with his audience. Trevor talked about this last week, authorial intent. We always, when we approach the scriptures, want to be seeing what is the author trying to convey to his original audience because that is going to give us the meaning of the text. We don't approach the scriptures saying, what does this mean to me? That's not a way that we approach the scriptures. That's way too subjective. We want to see what the author was meaning to uh, show his original audience. And from there, then we derive that meaning and its application to our lives. So the main point that, that Matthew is driving at here seems to center on God's all-powerful protection of his own son in the midst of incredible evil here. The Bible is in our faces on the subject of the, the humanity's capacity to do evil. It's all over the scriptures. Like the, the, the stories of um, the, the human heroes in the Bible are not prettied up for us in any way, shape, or form. The people that we're seeing and the stories that they lived were full of shame and guilt and injustice against one another, and which, which uh, serves to illuminate God's mercy and God's justice in the midst of human history. Our capacity to do evil is incredible. Our capacity to seek power, to steal glory, to hate God and to hate the people around us, to manipulate outcomes, to seek control at all costs, to heck with other people, that is all within you and I. And we see in this story that Herod here, um, he was seeking to maintain his power. He wanted to destroy this child, Jesus, because Jesus was a threat to him. He was a threat to his autonomy. He was a threat to Herod's wealth. He was a threat to his comfort. He was a threat to his glory. He was a threat to his control in the land, his seat of power. So what we're seeing is that the big king, Herod here, is zeroing in on the little king, the toddler king, Jesus. One is a king of the earth, Herod, and the other is the high king of heaven, and the two kings are at war. But what we see here through this narrative is that God is guiding history. So imagine just for a moment that you're Herod. Imagine that you're Herod. Imagine that you're a king, that you've got his father for your father and his mother for your, father, for your mother. Imagine that you have his story. Imagine that you have his seat of power. Imagine that you have his wealth. And imagine that like him, you are living without God. If you were Herod with his story, the things that you would have done 
and said and not done and not said would probably shock you and shock me. One commentator has said this, Herod is what I am deep down inside. The capacity to do evil in him, even if it's in the bud in us, it's still there in the flesh. It's still there in the human heart. And so what we are deep down inside is why Jesus had to lay his life down in order to grant us ours, in order to remake us righteous. God's divine protection of his son in the face of human evil, it seems to be the main plot line in this section, but there's this illuminating subplot that's going on in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 25, that we just read together that actually clarifies what's happening here, that clarifies how God is protecting his son and serving ultimately through the life of Jesus, his own people. Um, earlier in Matthew's gospel, the first and second week, I, I um, helped to show how you, and this was a total illumination for me as well, how Matthew is using this word, this Greek word genesis in the beginning of Matthew, the same word translated genealogy at the very beginning in verse one means genesis. And then in Matthew, later in Matthew chapter one, where uh, he says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, that word birth is also the word genesis. And what Matthew seemed to be doing there was calling back to his Jewish converts that are now followers of Jesus. He's using this word Genesis to spark in their minds how Jesus is a sort of new beginning. He's a sort of new creation in the world. What he's bringing about is a new covenant. It's a new way of relating to God. It is a literal new beginning and new creation for humanity. And so Matthew, what he's doing in this section that we're in this morning is he's developing this theme further by presenting Jesus as a new Moses who will lead his people in an exodus. Exodus means mass departure. And Jesus as the new Moses will lead his people in a new exodus away from a cruel enemy. The cruel enemy would be greater than Pharaoh. We'll get into Moses' story here in just a little bit. But the cruel enemy that Jesus is delivering his people from is the consequence of sin our enemy, Satan, death, and hell. That's what Jesus is leading his people away from here. Uh, Patrick Schreiner, he says this, both stories, Jesus and Moses, they're theological portraits of the war between the kings of the earth and the king of heaven. And so what we're gonna get into this morning is um, this theological um, paradigm of typology. Typology is a person, it's an event, or it's an institution in the redemptive history of the Old Testament. So in the story of God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that prefigures a corresponding but a greater reality in the New Testament. So that's all kind of big here. Let me break it down a little bit. Uh, I'm just going to read it one more time. I think it should be on the screen. Typology is a person, it's an event, or an institution in the redemptive history of the Old Testament. And what it does is it prefigures, or to use a different word, it foreshadows a corresponding or greater reality in the, New in, in the New Testament. So Jesus is a type of Adam. Jesus is referred to in Romans chapter 5 as the new Adam, the second Adam. 
Adam, the first Adam, our first parent in the garden, he failed the test in the garden and he plunged humanity into the consequence of sin and being cut off from the Lord. But Jesus is the new Adam who passes the test in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. I'll do what you say. And he goes to the cross for us. Jesus is a new type of Abraham. Abraham left all that he knew and went off into a far country that God called him to. He was obedient. He had faith in God who called him. Jesus left his seat of power and all of his wealth and comfort and glory in heaven. He came down to us. He took on flesh, the second member of the Trinity, and he leads us into a new way of life. Jesus is a type of Moses. Moses led his people out of Israel, or out of Egypt rather, away from the Egyptians and gave them a law to live by. But Jesus is a new, a, a new Moses who essentially leads us away from Satan, sin and death, a much more cruel enemy, but he gives us a new law. A new law I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And so what we're going to see from Jesus as he begins his teaching in Matthew's gospel, in, Matthew's, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that Jesus is going to begin to teach out of his own mouth, you have heard it said back here from Moses, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're going to hear from Jesus a new way of living and a new law. So there is, uh, Jesus is a bit of a type of Moses here. Here's why that all matters. Don't gloss over. Here's why this all matters. Because Matthew's gospel is telling the story of historic Israel, and he's telling the story through the lens of the historic Jesus, who is the great deliverer, where Moses was a good deliverer and a mighty deliverer of God's people. Jesus is the great and final deliverer. And so the story of God is coming to its climax through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to see how Jesus' exile to and from Israel is a type. It's a sort of new Exodus story. So in this Matthew text that we've just read this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, we've, we see angels here on three occasions. Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, he uh, is visited in, uh, at night while asleep in a dream by an angel uh, who gives him all kinds of warning. We see that three times, but we've already seen um, angels speaking through dreams twice before in Matthew's gospel leading up to this point. So by the end of chapter two, an angel now has given revelation from God five times in the first couple of chapters. So we've got this seemingly, like there's an emphasis here on dreams, an emphasis on warning, an emphasis on supernatural intervention. And so my more charismatic friends in the room, you guys are like, yes, tell me about some of this. And my more conservative friends in the room, you're already pitting out a little bit this morning, right? Like got a little bit of that sweat on the upper lip, like don't, let's not talk talk about this. I don't want to talk about these things. I, I really want to dive in here, but it's not the main point. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to stick to the main point. But I want, I want, us to, I want this to land on us at least. One thing is really evident as you, as you read through God's story in the scriptures. Throughout history, he guides his people through dreams. 
and he guides his people through angelic messengers. We do have to be careful with these things because they can go off the rails very quickly. And so we want to stick to the precedent that the Bible lays out for us. But we need to understand this, that the the main character of the scriptures is God himself, and he does things that are outside of a naturalistic explanation. And so, like Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, we come to him on his terms. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But picking up in this section where Trevor left left off this week, Jesus and his parents, they traveled down to uh, Bethlehem. They they are ordered by Caesar, this Roman ruler, to go to Bethlehem um, to be counted there in their ancestral home for the census because Caesar is counting all of the people in the land. And she ends up having uh, Jesus there, and they're visited by a group of magi or a group of wise men. Um, They had knowledge, these wise men did, that a cruel and arrogant puppet king ruling over Judea, a man named Herod, that he was on the lookout for Jesus, and he was on the look out for those who are associated with Jesus. And so those magi also were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they took the back roads back home and they avoided him completely. But right after they leave, Jesus's dad, Joseph, he has another dream. And that's what we see in verse 13. It's a dream that we can't ignore. A messenger, an angel of the Lord appears to him and gives Joseph these detailed instructions, right? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment. We're going to be doing a little bit of that this morning. We've already done it with Herod. Now put yourself in Jesus's dad's shoes, this guy named Joseph here. You load up your nine-month or so, eight-month or so pregnant wife on the back of an animal, and you cart her a number of miles down to Bethlehem. She ends up giving birth, having labor with Jesus here and giving birth to him in a sort of outbuilding right alongside animals. You've probably got some of your family around. There are probably some people there because it's their ancestral home who are helping to care for them. They probably weren't totally on their own, but out of left field, literally, some shepherds come and visit them and say, hey, we just, it's, there was an announcement given to us by angels that the king of the Jews is here. We've come to worship him. And not only that, but these strange magi from the east, these astronomers come and they bring these crazy gifts, and they also worship Jesus here. So you are caught off guard in this moment. And and now from them, from those magi, you get word that you're being pursued by the most notorious man among your people. He's in pursuit of you. He's looking for you. Now, Joseph has another dream. And this other dream says, you're not actually going back home. You need a visa. You're going to go down to Egypt, about 90 miles, no cell phones, no maps, probably not a lot of cash on hand. It's a total surprise to you, so you may not have any contacts in Egypt at all. You just have to go, and according to this angel, you need to remain there until I tell you. You need to just stay put until you hear from me again. I was thinking about this, and uh, Ace Ventura is one of my favorite movies. It's just so quotable, right? When he's going into the dolphin tank, Snowflake's tank, and he's got the trainers up above him, he drops down into the tank, and what does he say? He says, if I'm not back in five minutes, just wait longer. 
right? That's kind of what it's like with Joseph right here, the angel. If I'm not back in two months, just wait longer. You'll know, I'll visit you in a dream. I'll come to you in the way that I have. But thankfully, I think for Joseph, this, this angelic messenger, he gives him a why, which I'm sure made a difference here. The king is looking for your child in order to destroy him. And I'm sure that would motivate a good dad. And so like a good dad, Joseph gets the family right up Then and there, look at the text. It says, and he rose and took the child and his mother, what? By night. He gets up in the middle of the night. He gets them up on dark roads and he departs to Egypt. Egypt, this is where he was going and landed in Egypt. He's somewhere between 75 and 100 miles from Bethlehem by foot at night with a new toddler. You don't even want to go hiking with your toddler. He gets them up. Before sunrise, he rolls out. Matthew, then what he does for us with this fulfillment quotation here is he connects this event to Israel's previous history with Egypt. And so this is where, because Matthew is writing to Jewish converts here, this is where they would have really begun thinking of Moses as he begins to mention this departure down to Egypt. Remember, they've got the Old Testament in their view. It's the story that they have, it's, it's the story of their fathers and mothers, the story that they have grown up with. And he writes, this was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the prophet, a man named Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So what Hosea is doing is he's writing in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He, Hosea is writing after Moses' exodus, after he's taken the people out of Egypt. He's led Israel out of Egypt. But Hosea is writing at his time, about 600 years before Jesus, reminding the Israelites of how faithful God has been through Moses to them by leading them out of slavery. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to step back into Israel's story when they were enslaved in a foreign country by a cruel king, by a cruel leader, someone named Pharaoh, or by the title of Pharaoh here. And I'm going to cover, brace yourself, about 40 chapters of Genesis in right around five minutes. So we're just going to go like high and quick through the story of Israel. So if you're kind of unfamiliar with the story of the Bible and how does Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how do these guys, how do they fit into the storyline of Scripture, um, tune in here. What happens is God appears to a man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham, he tells Abraham, who is living in the land of his fathers and mothers, there is no Jewish people, there are no Hebrews at this point. Abraham is the first one. God speaks to Abraham and tells Abraham to leave his home that he's always known, that he imagined he would probably die in, and to take his family and to take his servants, he was a man of great wealth, and to take his wealth to a far country that God would show him. And so God was leading Abraham moment by moment. And Abraham had such a powerful encounter with the Lord at that time that he trusted him and he believed him. God promised that he would bless Abraham's descendants and that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And God also promised that through his descendants, one would come who would bless the nations. So it was a messi- there was a messianic or a messiah prophecy embedded in God's promise to Abraham here. And Abraham had faith that God was true, 
that God was true to his word, that he was who he said he was. And so God counted that faith. We see in Genesis chapter 12 through 17, he counted that faith of Abraham, that trust that Abraham had for him as righteousness. The scriptural language is he credited it to him. He actually made, he declared Abraham righteous through his trust. Now, Abraham had a son named Isaac, And Isaac had a son named Jacob. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were like 90 years old when they had Isaac. It seemed impossible. She was laughed at because she was barren and ridiculed by the people around her. And this son of promise comes, a man named Isaac. And they are ecstatic and they raise Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob ends up tangling with the Lord. It's the story of him kind of wrestling with the Lord by night. And God renames Jacob Israel. So Jacob gets, Abraham's grandson gets a new name. His name is Israel. Israel would go on with his wife, Rachel, who we're going to read about in just a little bit. Um, Israel and Rachel, they ended up having 12 sons. These 12 sons are the 12 tribal heads of Israel. These 12 sons have families, multiply. These 12 families um, grow into tribes, and these tribes eventually grow into this massive nation. Now, while Israel, Jacob, Israel, Einhorn, Finkel, Finkel, Einhorn, Israel and his wife, Rachel, were parenting. That was a reference. I don't know if any of you got it, but Maurice Ventura. It, while Israel and his wife, Rachel, were parenting their 12 boys, a handful of boys, a handful of those brothers were so annoyed with their younger brother, Joseph, that they sold Joseph off to some traveling traders. They ended up dipping his coat, stealing his coat from him, which his father had given him because he was a favorite son. They dipped it in blood. They took that coat back to their father, Isaac, and said a wild animal must have got him, when in reality, they sold him off to some traders who then carted Joseph down to Egypt. Joseph would begin his history in Egypt as a slave, but he would rise through the ranks of this Egyptian system, and he would eventually become second in command right under Pharaoh himself. God was guiding the course of history. He was guiding the life of Joseph for a future deliverance. There arose this uh, famine in the land of Canaan where these 11 brothers who sold out their one brother were still living with their dad Isaac. A famine arose there and they heard that, that, it, that Egypt had been gathering grain and had storehouses of grain that they could, that they could potentially per- purchase. So these brothers went down to Egypt to try to purchase some grain from the Egyptians. They end up coming face to face with their little brother, Joseph, who they didn't recognize, but he recognized them. Joseph tested them, he eventually forgave them, he drew them in, and he provided for all of their needs. And not only did Joseph provide for all of his brothers and his family's needs, but he actually convinced them to come to move everybody down to Egypt and wait out this famine. And so they did. They had babies on babies while they were living within Egypt, and and the Israelites grew into this massive nation in Israel, or in rather in within the midst, within the borders of Egypt. Israel grows into a nation within the nation of Egypt. Now, this Pharaoh dies, Joseph dies, 
and a new, these brothers die, Isaac dies, and a new Pharaoh comes to power. And this new Pharaoh felt threatened by all of the Israelites who were living in Egypt. And he tried to stop their growth by having all of their firstborn sons killed. Does this sound familiar to the Matthew story? The Pharaoh wanted to have all of the Israelites' firstborn sons killed. Well, the people, these maidservants that he, uh, that he ordered to do that, they refused his orders and they thwarted his plans. And so naturally, he moved to his next plan, which was just to enslave them. Remember, the human capacity for evil is a thing. So God raises up out of this nation of Israel, within the nation of Egypt, a deliverer. Israel existed within Egypt for about 400 years of trauma and oppression as they're enslaved by these Israelites. But God would raise up this man, a man named Moses. Moses would go up against Pharaoh. He'd call Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of Egypt. Pharaoh would refuse, and Joseph would come a total, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Moses would come a total of 10 times to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, but he wouldn't. So God offered Pharaoh a way out 10 times. Do you see the mercy here of God? He's offering Pharaoh a way out of this predicament 10 times. But the 10th plague would, eventually, would, would actually lead to the destruction of every firstborn son in Egypt. God would kill every firstborn son in Egypt as a result of, Joseph, or of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. And Pharaoh continually refused. His heart was too hard. And so God, um, he, he, he instructed his people to cover the doorposts of their houses with the blood of an innocent lamb. And as his spirit came over, on, uh, came over the entire land of Egypt on one night, this spirit would strike down the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but wherever this blood was painted on their doorposts, he would spare the Israelites' sons. This is where this... Israelite tradition Passover comes from. The angel of the Lord passed over the Israelites and delivered them out of the nation of Egypt. Now, the Israelites would tell this story and celebrate this Passover every single year, remembering how God used Moses to deliver them from their cruel oppressor, Egypt. And now God, Matthew is foreshadowing for us how God would use Jesus to deliver his people from our cruel oppressor, Satan, sin, death, hell. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is a sort of new Moses? Because Jesus and Moses here, they paint a picture of God's powerful and gracious deliverance for his people. Look at this quote by Patrick Schreiner. The parallels between Moses' birth and Jesus' birth are unmistakable and they're not coincidental. Both are born as helpless children in a doomed home and under a foreign power. Both kings seek to kill male Hebrew children who threaten to upset the balance of power in the nation. Both stories show the persecution and preservation of God's people. Both Moses' family and Jesus' family are told by God to return to the land and both stories display how God sovereignly preserves his chosen one in the most unlikely of circumstances. Matthew portrays Herod the Great as an evil and paranoid ruler, much like Pharaoh. God preserves his redeemers, Jesus and Moses, in the midst of persecution because he has greater plans for them. I want to reiterate the parallels between Jesus and Moses paint a picture of God's gracious 
and powerful deliverance. So when Jesus' family, when they, when Joseph and his mother Mary, when they flee to Egypt and then when they return from Egypt, Matthew is helping his readers see how Jesus is inaugurating a new exodus. Now, the father, he spared his son from death as a child, right? Herod was not able to find Jesus and put him to death as a child. But the father didn't spare Jesus from death altogether, did he? Not at all. He spared him for a time. We could argue that Jesus might have suffered less had he been found as a child and killed by Herod. Eventually, he would be tracked down. He would be opposed. He would be killed. But here's the point. Had Jesus died as a child, our atonement would not have been secured. Jesus' time had not arrived yet. See, we are not only saved by Jesus' death, but we're saved by Jesus' death in conjunction with Jesus' perfect life. His life lived in our place for us. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has fulfilled the law law of God perfectly. He has learned obedience through his life. And so it's his substitutionary life in our place that makes his death effective to save or to atone for us from our consequence, from the consequence of our sinful rebellion. And the consequence of your and I's sinful rebellion against God is God's wrath. He is justified for his wrath against our rebellion, against the way that we have turned our backs on him and said, you are effectively not God, I'm going to operate as God and I'm going to live apart from you, which makes God merciful for sparing us through the life and death of his son. Jesus would have to die. But listen to this quote from Dale Bruner. He says this, for Jesus Christ to live now Innocent children must die, but for all to live hereafter, an innocent Jesus must die. And so this flight to Egypt for Jesus and his family, it's about far more than simply running away from Herod. This was about painting a picture. So don't miss the parallels here in this story. In this true event, and it is a true event, we're reminded of God's character and of his mercy in the Old Testament. That's what Matthew is wanting his readers to see again and again and again, God's mercy in the Old Testament. The Passover celebration was a picture of what was coming through Jesus Christ. It was a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what was coming. But we also see the mercy of God, it hasn't diminished from his work in the Old Testament. It's amplified. The the Messiah has arrived, God himself dwelling with men. And Jesus' name means, Jesus or Yeshua means God saves. And so God himself would save and deliver Israel, not just Israel, but all of his people from their sins. David Platt says, just as Israel was God's son brought out of Egypt, so now Jesus as God's son is brought out of Egypt. Now, this other section here where Herod kills these children, it's hard for us to get our 21st century imaginations around what it would be like to to, to live in the midst of that. But Matthew draws out this second fulfillment quotation here from the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, Then as these children in Bethlehem were slaughtered by by Herod, who was no, no doubt an evil man, 
it, it, it brought about a bit of fulfillment through what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was Isaac's, or Rachel rather was Israel's wife, the mother of the 12 tribes of Israel here. So Herod has heard that a new king has been born, and Herod is so threatened by these prophecies, by the affirmations of the religious rulers, by the affirmations of the magi, by the, the murmuring and the rumors going about among the common people. And Herod is so devoted here to keeping his power that he resorts to murdering all of the children two years or under in Bethlehem. That's where he believes Jesus is. It's assumed by many scholars that, that Bethlehem was a smallish town of only a few hundred at max. And so the numbers of how many little boys there would be two years and under in Bethlehem is, uh, is estimated somewhere around 10 to 30 little boys, somewhere between 10 and 30 boys under two years old. In a small town, losing those kind of children at once as soldiers uh, represented by, or uh, representatives of Herod come marching into town, that kind of grief would be unimaginable. Just because it was 10 to, 10 to 30 and not 3,000, let's not minimize who lost their lives here. What Matthew is doing is connecting Herod's evil in Jesus's day to this prophecy written by Jer Jeremiah 600 years earlier. Rachel, like I said, she's the wife of Israel, formerly named Jacob. And what, what, what Jeremiah is doing and what Matthew is doing here is he's using Rachel's name to kind of personify or represent all of the future Israelite mothers who have grieved, lost children, and suffered. So in Jeremiah's day, Ramah was a town just north of, of uh, Jerusalem where when the Babylonians came in and sacked Jerusalem and took the Israelites off as the spoils of war, Ramah was a town just north of Jerusalem where all of these Israelite um, families were separated and were carted off to different portions of the country and traumatized. So just for a moment here, imagine the grief at this kind of a separation as they are now the spoils of war, they have no idea what their future holds here. A voice was heard in Ramah. These are Israelite children slaughtered by Herod. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise. So here's the dream again. Here's the angel again. Take the child and his mother and go back home. Go back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he was there, when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his evil father, Herod, Archelaus was, uh, was just as notorious as his father for being cruel and unjust Joseph was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. This town, Nazareth, and here's where we will close, this town, Nazareth, it was despised by the Israelites. 
Um, it's sort of how I thought of Post Falls, actually, when I was a kid in high school. Can anything good come from there? That's why some people call it Rat Dump instead of Rath Drum. Sorry if you live there. It's a great town. Jesus begins his ministry, and somebody comments on his hometown. They hear that he's from Nazareth, and what do they say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was despised by Israelites. So the fact here that Jesus, that Nazareth was Jesus' hometown was a reason for ridiculing him. He was known as a Nazarene. There's, there, there are several theories. So what's kind of interesting about this, this f- um, promise and fulfillment here that Matthew picks up on is that, that there is nowhere in the Old Testament that this prophecy lies. You're not going to find this in your Bible at all. It was passed down likely as a composite through Jewish history. That, that what, they, what, they, um, what they seemed to believe was that the Messiah would be despised, that he would come from an unmemorable place, that he would be of no reputation or noble birth, that he would arrive on the scene unexpected. And so we see here the prophet Isaiah actually says something distinct about this. He predicted that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. And this is where we'll close. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 and 3. He writes, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. That this Messiah was despised, or the servant of God despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He, this Messiah, was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. He's in our place. All of us. Isaiah writes, like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Messiah, who we've come to know as Jesus, the sins of us all. There is a little bit of Herod in each of us. There are two kings at war in the world, and there are two kings at war in all of us. And so my question where I'll close this morning is, who do you serve? Where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to the King of heaven, the Christ Jesus himself? If it is, he makes demands on your life. He is calling you to live in particular ways. He is calling you to tune your ears increasingly to his voice. He is calling you to love him with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. He wants your allegiance. Will you relent? Will you submit to him? Father, help me, help us.
to submit. Through many words this morning, Old Testament history, it can be convoluted. So I understand. But you search hearts uniquely. And so there are probably uh, things that I've said, things that have not been said. There are ways that you have spoken to your people this morning. Would you help them help us to remember the way that you are speaking to us? To turn us into eager students of your word, that we would not be a people who yawn at our Bibles. As we look into this story of Matthew's gospel, we recognize just how deep the layers go, far beyond what we see on the surface. And what we understand and what we should come to understand is if you have guided all of history to this point, you guide us as well. So help us to see the way that you are uniquely at work in our worlds, working out your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.